Good morning, ladies. Why don't we begin with a prayer in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's ask our ladies' intercession as we begin. Hail Mary, full of grace, <coughs> with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So hope everybody had uh, a good restful evening yesterday, waking up to a very beautiful day here in Southern California as we continue our reflections on this 500th anniversary of the birth of St. Teresa of Avila. So if you remember last night, we talked about things that keep us from giving ourselves wholly, fully over to God, really living out and fulfilling what we were created to be. And so we're going to look at something else today that is somewhat connected to that, or very much connected to it. Uh, another quote that I really like from Teresa of Avila, and she's talking about, specifically here, an obstacle to growth in your prayer life, or what she would call the mansions, of going deeper in the mansions to encounter and to have that transforming union with Jesus. And she says, to be able to grow in prayer, to be able to go deeper in the mansions, quote, the important thing is not to think much, but to love much. The important thing in prayer, but I'm going to say in the spiritual life in general, is not to think much, but to love much. So as you can see, there's going to be sort of an extension from what we talked about yesterday, that really the gift of self is about love, about knowing the Lord's love for us and about returning that gift of love to him. And so if that's what we were created for, if that's what's the most important, we're going to see that that love, that choice, has to have a primacy over thinking. Now, I'm going to start off by saying this, a caveat. We believe as Christians and as Catholics that thinking is still important. It's very, very important. It's crucial. In fact, there are not enough people in the world today who think. Our reason, our ability to use our intellect is a great gift from God, and probably that, more than just about anything else, is what distinguishes us from the animals, distinguishes us from the rest of creation. It's our ability to reason, our ability to use our intellect, which reflects God's own intellect, the great mind of God. And so because of that, we believe that theology, the study of God, the study of Scripture, the study of the sacraments, all of these different things that we do in theology, these things are very, very important. If we don't have a good theology, then we're not going to be able to really grow in our faith. But it can't be something, theology, which is just purely intellectual. There has to be a heart to it. As one theologian said, the best theology is done on your knees. So yeah, you're using your intellect, you're reflecting on these divine truths, but you're doing so in a very prayerful, loving manner. And so even in prayer, ladies, we know we've got to be able to use our intellect. So whenever we're meditating on scripture, 
We're reasoning through things. We're imagining things. We're coming away with certain truths for our spiritual and moral life. Whenever we do spiritual reading, we're having to engage our mind to understand what's being said and to make practical applications for our lives. You know, we as Catholics and Christians, we're not Buddhists when it comes to prayer. For the Buddhists, we want to sort of shut our mind down and just sort of blend into things. We never shut our mind down. We never are mindless creatures. We might quiet our mind down and make our heart more attentive, but the intellect is always going to be there. But here's the truth. No matter how important theology is, no matter how important meditation is, no matter how important it is to recognize the gift of the intellect and the mind, the mind can only touch the silver lining of God. Imagine there's God there. So we can think about God, we can meditate, we can do theology, but we're only going to be able to touch the silver, silver lining. Because ultimately, with our intellect, we can know a lot about God. We can know a lot about theology. But can we know him? Can we encounter him as a person who loves us and desires us to love him back? There's only so far we can go. The mind allows us to know about God, but it's the will, the heart, that allows us to know God as a person. So in a sense that you can get a book and you can read everything you want to know about George Washington or about any great historical figure or a friend of yours or someone who's alive, but can you really know that person? Not until you encounter them as a person and not until you really love them and are willing to give yourself to them and receive their gift of love. So ultimately, holiness, true holiness, which comes from that encounter with God and allowing God to love us and fill us with his grace is more or takes more than just having brains. You know, people come up to me as a priest sometimes, oh, Father, that was a good homily. You're so smart. I really wish they would say, oh, Father, you're kind of holy. But again, I'm probably still working on that. It's the intelligence is important, but it doesn't make you holy. You don't need a theology degree to become a saint. You don't need a theology degree to become a saint. And sometimes with a theology degree, you can get very prideful. Again, I'm not saying they're not great saint theologians. But look at St. Therese of Lisieux, a doctor of the church. She, she had barely had any real education in theology. But yet, her doctrine is considered uh, crucial for the growth of the church. She's considered a doctor. And that's something that comes from intellect. Yes, she had some theology, but really from that encounter with love. And so, just as St. Paul tells us, love is the only thing that's the, the most important thing. It's the only thing that lasts. Love is what is crucial. Love is what we are going to be judged on. And love is not an, an act of the mind, even though to love something we have to know it with our intellect, but love is a choice. It's what we call an act of the will. Something more than emotion. We're not just talking about emotional feelings here. We're talking about a choice, that willingness to give ourselves, to serve another, to sacrifice ourselves for those whom we love. So here's another quote from Teresa of Avila that sort of echoes the one that we're basing this talk of. She said, they are eminently reasonable folk. 
their love is not yet enough to overwhelm their reason. So look, this is very reasonable individuals. They understand theology. They live a morally upright life. But she's saying that their, their love is not so strong enough to overwhelm their reason, to overcome their reason, to lead them to do these great deeds of love. Now, she's not saying that when love takes over, we become irrational or we become unreasonable. Never, never. The person who loves greatly is still a very reasonable person. Read the life and the writings of Teresa of Avila. You'll know that. She loved a lot, but she was always eminently reasonable and rational. And so often I think we think, well, love takes over and we do crazy things. Well, if you allow love as a feeling to take over, or particularly lust to take over, you do stupid things is what you normally do, not just crazy things. But we're talking about something much deeper. This love that takes over, this love for God, this experience of his love that makes us go beyond limits and makes us take risks out of love for God. Things that pure reason may say, well, that's a little extreme. You can, you can still love God. You can still be a saint by doing A, B, and C. But the person who knows the Lord and loves him wants to go above and beyond that. To put it in terms of scripture, love makes us put out into the deep. And Jesus says to the apostles, put out into the deep for the catch of fish. The person who loves is willing to put out into the deep, to take risks, to go to extremes, even when it seems not to make sense, to go beyond the rules, not to ever deny the rules, but to say, yeah, the rules are here, but I want to go above and beyond. I want to give more than what is required. So love wants to go to extremes in giving and of service for the beloved. It's even willing to suffer and die for the other. I love you so much that I'm willing to die for you. I love you so much that I'm willing to carry that cross with you, to go beyond what is required just by taking care of you. Because reason alone says, wait a second, this is going to hurt too much. Reason alone says all I'm required is to, to give you medicine and to make sure you're comfortable. But love goes above and beyond that. And so that's why we say that the martyrs in the church, those who died for Jesus, are the greatest lovers. Because they said, yeah, I need to be nice to my neighbor, but here I'm willing to die for my neighbor. So Maximilian Kolbe and his witness in the concentration camps, the witness of the saints, willing to die for their love of others, but most importantly, for their love of Jesus. Now, again, it would be wonderful if all of us walked out of here and said, we're willing to be martyrs. I love Jesus that much. But this <coughs> willingness to allow love to overtake our reason so that we, in a certain sense, stop being those reasonable folk and become lovers who want to give all, it can be seen to be enacted in some smaller ways in our daily life. And so that's what I want to look at, three specific areas where we really want love to overwhelm reason so that we can grow in holiness, so that we can, as we talked about yesterday, really open our hearts to giving ourselves fully to the Lord. 
And the first area is this, and this, frankly, ladies, is my area of expertise. My, my degree is in sexuality, marriage, and the family. My degree, my specific specialty is in moral theology. So I love the chance about teaching morals. And this is the first area where love really needs to overwhelm reason in the area of morals. Remember yesterday we talked about one of the struggles for giving ourselves holy is if we see our religion and our faith is nothing but a bunch of rules and laws. That duty basically drives our moral theology. Well, I've got all these rules and duties and I'm going to check them off. I'm following the Ten Commandments. I'm being a good person. Well, you may be a good person, but you're not yet perfect. Perfect is saying, hey, Lord, I love you so much. I want to go above and beyond that. I want to live as we'll see the Beatitudes. I want to find true happiness in giving myself fully. But the other danger is that it can lead to a minimalism. One of the questions that I get most frequently is, Father, and again, for those who don't know, I work on a college campus. I'm a campus minister over the University of Louisiana, and I've been doing it for about five years now. And I have a lot of wonderful students and wonderful young people. But, but a question I get often is, Father, how far can I go with my girlfriend before it becomes a mortal sin? Or, Father, how much beer can I drink before it becomes a mortal sin? And I'll say, you're asking the wrong question. You're asking the wrong question. Because basically what you're saying is, how far can I go in offending God and pushing the limits before he's not going to be happy with me? Why would you treat God that way, but you'd never treat a friend that way? Uh, imagine going to one of your friends and saying, how far can I gossip against you and backbite against you before you cut me off as your friend? We would never do that. But yet, that's the attitude we take with God. And so Cardinal Ratzinger, of course, as we know, who became Pope Benedict XVI, wrote something very beautiful about this. He said, the Christian is the person who does not calculate. Rather, he does something extra. He is, in fact, the lover who does not ask, how much further can I go and still remain within the realm of venial sin, stopping short of mortal sin? Rather, the Christian is the one who simply seeks what is good without any calculation. That's a beautiful quote. This is what we Christians are called to be, but too often what we calculate. We say, that, well, I'm going to do A, B, C, and D, and I'm done for my good deeds for the day. Or I want to do just enough to get me into heaven. But no, the Christian is the lover who's never going to ask these questions, who's always going to be looking, what more can I do to grow closer to God, to please him, to make Jesus happier? And we see this striving for excellence in so many other areas of our life. People say, I want to give the most energy I can to become the best musician or to become the best athlete or to become the best student. But when it comes to their spiritual life, oh, I want to get away with the minimum. But yet we know that's the most important. We give ourselves fully to those things we love. And so we want to do our best. We want to be saints. And so what is a saint? A saint is not someone who does the minimum, but the saint is the one who does heroic things, heroic virtue, and it's love that has to animate it. You don't have to go and convert all of a nation or die on the cross. St. Therese is arguably one of the greatest saints ever, but all she did were those small little things in love and learned to accept her own weakness 
and never let it push her away from Jesus. And so what happens is, particularly as we are preparing for the Feast of Mercy tomorrow, this attitude of love over justice, love over duty, and our moral life helps us to better celebrate it. Because the intellect is tied to justice. Oh, well, this is what you deserve. I'm going to give you what you deserve. But love makes us go above and beyond that. And showing mercy to someone. Yes, maybe you deserve this punishment. Maybe because of what you did to me or to whomever, this is what you deserve. But because I love you, I'm going to be more merciful. I'm not going to deny what you did is wrong, like Jesus to the woman caught in adultery. What you did is wrong, go and sin no more. But I'm not going to judge or condemn you. So that's the moral life. Another area, and I'm going to specifically talk about vocation here. Again, most of you ladies here, if not all, have, have settled on your vocation in life. You're married. Um, you've given yourself to your children. And we could talk about vocation in general and just what God calls us to do. But I'm going to situate it somewhat within the framework of vocations to the religious life because I work with young women so often and young men. You know, and there are a number of different reasons for this, but I'm going to sort of really hone in and focus on one of them. You know, we're very blessed at the University of Louisiana to have the FOCUS missionaries. The FOCUS is a, a national group, meaning or it's an acronym for the Fellowship of Catholic University Students. These are recent college grads who commit themselves to go to college campuses and evangelize. And they're about on 100 campuses now, and they've been around for 15 years. And the statistic is that in the 15 years of the college students they've worked with, about a hundred of the young women have gone on to pursue or discern religious life. And you're saying, well, that's very impressive. But in the 15 years, 400 guys have. Even more impressive. But what's even more interesting is that in actuality, the ratio of guy-to-girl involvement is inverse. It's three to one. So for every one guy you have involved in campus ministry, you usually have three girls. If guys were smart, they'd be much more involved because that's where all the girls are. <laughs> but the fact is, that shows what a minuscule number of girls respond to a vocation compared to guys. Again, there are a lot of different reasons, things that are happening and things that are not happening. But I think one of the big reasons is that guys... Don't think about it much. You say, I think you're called to the priesthood. All right, and they go. They go. And in a certain sense, it's guys in real life. They don't think about things very often. They just do. And sometimes it ends up well, and a lot of times it doesn't end up well. It's like, you know, those videos of guys like jumping off of a four-story building in a swimming pool. You see that. How many girls do you see in those videos? None. Because the girls think about it before they act, and that's good. But the problem becomes when it becomes to a vocation to the religious life. But here's what I'm saying in general, women. I think if you feel the Lord is calling you to something, where men are not going to think they're going to go, whether it be out of love or not, women think about it too much. They think about it too much, and they never act. They never act. They worry, worry, worry. Is this really what God wants me to do? I need 100% certitude before I do it. What, what if I fail? What if I make a mistake? What if, it, if I misinterpret God's will? And they sit and they worry so much that they never act. I'm not saying all women do that. 
And again, maybe it's that, that natural disposition women have to protect their children, to be safe. They don't need to maybe take the same risks that men do, but I'm seeing a lot of women who are crippled by anxiety, not only when it comes to the religious vocation, but in general. They, they, they feel the movement of the spirit, but that anxiety cripples them and they can't act. Even worse, they begin making pious excuses for why they can't act. Oh, I really don't think the Lord wants me to do this now. Or they begin making all these excuses and convince themselves and convince others that they're doing what the Lord's will is. So what I do in facing these young women who struggle, and in a certain sense, I think these I pose them two questions. And I think these questions could be posed to just any women. I'll ask them, what do you love the most, love the most doing? And number two, what's the greatest desire of your heart? What do you love the most? What gives you the most joy? And what's the greatest desire of your heart? And quite often, the young woman will say, I, what I get the most joy of is teaching catechism or serving others. And what's the greatest desire of my heart? To please Jesus. Then I said, what's stopping you from fulfilling that? Because you're going to find that in the way of religious life or consecrated life. And if a young woman comes and says, the greatest joy I have is holding babies and what I want most in life is to become a mother, then maybe that's what you need to go do. But if you're going to say your greatest joy and greatest desire is to make Jesus happy and to serve others, then what's stopping you from doing it? The Lord's going to make sure that you find that happiness, whether it be in that big thing or I say, ladies, in the small things too. That decision you're discerning, you're thinking about making. Is it going to give you joy? Is it going to be a great way to serve Jesus? Yes. Then unless Jesus comes and says, don't do it, or there's some great obstacle, don't be afraid to move forward. Follow the heart and trust in the Lord. And third and finally, and probably most importantly, this love becomes important when it's involved in prayer. Prayer is so much more than thinking. It's about loving. I would put it this way, prayer is more about being, being with the Lord, than about thinking or doing things. And so often we, we think, well, if I'm going to pray, I've got to do my five novenas, and I've got to do three rosaries, and two chaplets, and read the Bible reading, and then I'm prayed enough for the day. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but prayer is not just about doing this. We're so busy running around, we never really have time to spend with the Lord. And to think about it, someone that you really love a lot. I'm in the same room with them, but I'm running around doing all these chores and these errands. And wait a second, no, just stop and spend some time. Be alone, let's talk, let's visit. And so what happens is, in the same way, this idea that we have to constantly be busy about doing things makes us neurotic about being distracted in prayer. Well, my mind's wandering. I can't focus on my novena. I, I can't focus on this. God's not happy with me. No, that's not it at all. St. Therese talks about how she would fall asleep during prayer, but she said she's not going to worry about it. Not that she went to prayer time for a nap, but because she knew that the doctor, in order for the doctor to work in the patient, the patient has to be silent. The patient has to be silent. So even in her weakness, she found ways that the Lord could work through her. And so we can't really worry about becoming distracted. What matters is we bring our mind back. Again, our mind matters. But it means that our heart is there. Our heart is focused. It's more about being than about doing. So, so the story that I use to explain this 
Um, ladies, last year about this time, my closest friend died of cancer. Um, young woman, 39 years old, she, she never got married, loved the Lord, and I believe probably one of the few people I would ever call a saint. And, and just suffered so beautifully. She was like my sister. She was closer than the sister. And, and then during the end, I got to spend a lot of time with her. as She was there suffering and dying, terrible uh, stage four cancer in her lungs and metastasized to her brain. And I would sit there and just hold her hand and kind of pet her arm. And we wouldn't say anything. We wouldn't say anything. But the love that was present there, my being with her, meant a lot. To the point that, that even at the night, if I were like rubbing her arm and then I would fall asleep or stop, she'd like wake up and look at me. All right, go back to doing it. It wasn't a matter of what I said, but those were the most intimate times she and I ever spent. Because we my mind could have been anywhere. What mattered is I was there. I was being present. And that's the attitude the Lord has towards us, is that are we present to him? Are we there? Even though our mind might be wandering, it's the heart. I, I, her name was Suzanne. I love Suzanne more than anybody in the world. My heart was present there. And so that's what mattered to her. And the same way is our heart present. Are we there being with the Lord, allowing the love to take over rather than thinking about these things? That's what means a lot for Jesus. And, and so we need to have this movement in prayer towards love. Of course, we need to have the experience of the Lord's love to really move forward, but to not worry so much about thinking or reading or doing things. But what's the hardest is just going and sitting and being quiet. And ultimately, if you know Teresa of Avila's thought, as you grow in the spiritual life, you're going to be led to the prayer of quiet, to prayer of recollection, and then ultimately contemplation or there are no real words spoken, or there's no visions actually formed in the mind, but you're just present in that contemplative gaze, drawn in by the beauty of the Lord. But if all we do is we, we can use our prayers and our novenas and all these different things to, to shore us up and to, to say, listen, I got all these things and the Lord's calling us deeper, but we're too scared to go deeper. We need to let go of that sometimes. Not that we ever stop praying vocal prayers. We never give up the rosary. We allow ourselves to be quiet and allow the Lord to work with us. And from that, and from that, and, and this is the key, as we grow deeper in prayer, prayer becomes less and less of a challenge. Now, you're going to have to go through a period of tremendous darkness and tremendous suffering if you're going to grow in the mansions, but there's still that desire to be with the Lord. And when we're not there, even though it's dark, we realize something's missing. Some, what happens is, from that comes a great joy, a joy in spending time in prayer, but a joy that overflows to the rest of our life. So think about it. Think about spending time with someone you love or that really, really loves you. Maybe the person or persons we talked about yesterday. You know, what is it, what is it like? It's a joy being with that person. You enjoy spending time with them, and others could tell. Others could tell that you love that person by the smile on your face, by your laughter, by your demeanor. Well, if we really love the Lord and we give ourselves to him in love, then shouldn't we have or demonstrate that same attitude in our minds and our hearts? And this is what happens is, is prayer, then the spiritual life begins to change. 
Even though there may be darkness, it's no longer drudgery. Oh, my goodness, I don't want to go to Mass this weekend. Oh, why do I have to pray? You're not going to see that attitude. They're going to be like, wow, the Lord is going to give me his body and blood this weekend, and I have to get to communion with him. There's nothing that's going to stop me from missing that. Think of it. You would never want to miss spending that time with that person you love, even for it's just five minutes, five minutes. But yet we get the Lord demands us to spend some time with him. But we've got to go beyond that to think and say, well, we have an obligation, but I want to. Because I know the Lord's love for me. He gives his gift of his body and blood, and I want to receive that. I want that chance to have communion with him. And it's the joy of the gospel that Pope Francis talks about. And we're going to talk a lot more about this in the next section, in our next talk. Is that Christians' lives are supposed to be marked by joy. Because people who love and who know that they are loved tend to be joyful people. You have your difficult times. You have your bad times. But there's a happiness that comes from loving and being loved. So again, as I said, we're going to look at that more in the next, time, in the next, the next uh, talk. Because that's what the gospel is about, the good news of God's love for us and our salvation. If we really believe it, we're going to be happy. We're going to be joyful people. So we're going to conclude now giving some brief homework. So I gave you the homework yesterday leading up to today. This homework or these sort of spiritual exercises will lead you to the next conference, which is at 4 o'clock this afternoon. Not that you just have to do this, but you can, you can do other things too, but I think it should really form a big part of your spiritual exercises. First is, is to ask yourself, do you, at least in the spiritual life and the prayer life, is it based more on thinking than on loving? Is there more of the head or more of the heart? Again, I'm not saying there should no, be no head at all. There needs to be the intellect. But do you allow your thoughts and your thinking to stop you from loving? That's the first thing. The second thing is this, and I want you to meditate. It's in Matthew chapter 19, I believe. and uh, think Mark chapter 10. You can look it up. It's the parable uh, or the story of the rich young man. You know the story? The rich young man comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, what do I need to do to, to, to enter the kingdom of heaven? And, and the, Jesus says, follow the commandments. And he says, I do this. What more? And he says, if you want to be perfect, sell all that you have and come follow me. And the young man bowed his head and went away sad because he had many possessions, many possessions. And so what does this have to do with anything? Well, in a certain sense, it has to talk about, deal with about the commandments. I'm following the rules. I'm a good person. But what is Jesus calling this young man to do? Calling to follow him out of love. It's love that makes us give up everything and follow Jesus in this radical way. And maybe in our own ways, in our own lives, where we felt that call of Jesus, that push to go deeper out of love, but we say, no, I can't do it. Because we rely too much on our reason, we rely too much on fear, and we don't follow the Lord's call. The third, and most importantly, though, let's take some time to spend some time just being with the Lord. You can bring your rosary, but, but don't bring any novenas. Don't bring any books to read. Say, Lord, I'm here in your presence. I love you. I just want to spend some quiet time with you. I want to be with you. I want you to transform me. 
and I'm making myself present. Do you, maybe you could use your mind to focus on a crucifix or the Eucharist, do whatever you need to do, but just spend that time. It's going to be uncomfortable. Maybe try to spend 5, 10, 15 minutes, but allow the Lord to, to, to shower his love on you. Because again, if you can't sit still and you're running around, you're not going to be able to receive the love of the Lord. So spend that time and just allow the Lord to work with you. So those are the three homework exercises, ladies. I know we're going to be having confessions in a few minutes and then uh, some more time for prayer, and we'll continue our reflections this afternoon. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, or without end. Amen. The Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless.